All right, everybody. Grab a seat. It's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 13? Now, if you're just joining us, we are currently in a section of the book of Revelation that's a, a, a kind of an interlude or a parenthesis. It's really a flashback um, that are contained in chapters 10 to 14, but a flashback that is uh, taking us back into the first half of the 70th week of Daniel, which we've already covered chronologically, but um, it's filling in some of the gaps, giving us some extra details. Uh, chronologically, we have already seen the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments, which have um, taken us into the last half of the 70th week of Daniel, known as also known as the Great Tribulation. The uh, seventh trumpet, which is already technically sounded in chapter 11, verse 15, is eventually going to introduce us, or actually the world, uh, to the seven bold judgments in chapter 16. Those will be the final judgments before the Lord Jesus returns. Now, not only did the seventh trumpet uh, is, is really going to introduce us to the seven bold judgments, but it has also begun to introduce us to seven personages. We've already looked at five of them in chapter 12. A woman clothed with the sun, the red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, the male child, the archangel Michael casting Satan out of heaven, the offspring of the woman persecuted by the dragon. And now in chapter 13, we're going to be introduced to the final two personages, two coming world leaders, one political, the other religious. All right. Now, there are 33 titles in the Old Testament, 13 in the New, for these that are used for these two leaders, coming leaders. The name that most of us use to refer to the political leader who will unite the world in a one world government, the name most commonly he's referred to is as the Antichrist. Now, as we have already pointed out, the word anti, antichrist, the word anti in the Greek can mean against or opposed to, that's true, but it can also mean in the place of. And I really believe that's the correct interpretation. The Antichrist isn't going to be against or opposed to the concept of a Christ. In other words, he isn't going to be anti-religious. He will set himself up as the ultimate replacement for Jesus, the true Christ. Jesus said in Mark 13, verse 6, For many will come in my name. Now he's talking about this period we're actually studying in Revelation. But for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And will deceive many. Mark 13, 21 and 2. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. You know, it's very interesting, guys. Many atheists and secularists have always believed that the more our understanding of science and medicine and technology increases, well, the more secular society would become until religion would disappear from the earth altogether because religion is for the ignorant masses. It's superstition rooted in ignorance and darkness and so on. And the more we as a, a world 
would grow and become enlightened intellectually and all, and again, with our knowledge of science and technology, uh, well, after a while, the need for God would be done away with. In fact, religion would basically disappear from the face of the earth, these people have always believed, because, again, it's rooted in the darkness of ignorance. And as mankind becomes more and more enlightened, well, he doesn't need to, you know, embrace things like religion. It's interesting that the Bible predicts just the opposite is going to be true. At the time the Antichrist makes his appearance on the world scene, secularism won't be the dominant ideology of mankind. But rather there's going to be a great spiritual awakening taking place. Not a Holy Spirit awakening, but a great spiritual awakening of occultism and um, other things like that. Uh, the world is going to be entrenched in very dark spiritual practices that are going to energize and even uh, invite more demonic activity. You know, as um, I, I believe, as a nation, the more people have gotten into the occult, the word occult means hidden. Well, it's not hidden anymore. It's mainstream. You know, I told you when I first got saved, I went into a bookstore to to, to check around and see if I can get a Bible there. It was a mainstream bookstore, you know, out in California. It's on vacation. And um, they had shelves and shelves of Christian books. This is going back in the early 80s. Um, as I'm walking around, I found two bookshelves about three foot uh, wide, two of them, in the very, very back of the store that had a few, had some occult books on them. Today, it's almost reversed, isn't it? You go into a mainstream bookstore, and practically the whole store is filled, uh, filled with occultism and uh, black magic and things like that, right? Uh, and they still have a fairly good Christian section, but it's not like it used to be, all right? Um, but I think as more and more people have opened the door to the occult, it has allowed more and more demonic activity in our society. The devil can't uh, just take over people. They have to invite him in, right? Uh, God won't take over our, uh, our personality. God won't force us to do anything against our will. He's not going to let the devil do it. But if people invite the devil to come in, well, how do they invite him? Well, by watching the things they watch and playing with the Ouija boards and the tarot cards and, uh, you know, and, and all these other things that they're involved in. They're opening the door to the occult more and more. This is giving permission to the enemy for them to, him to come in with his demons and take control of people's thinking and so on. We're seeing it more and more. It's going to reach a crescendo, is my point, when the Antichrist comes. And, uh, but but the, the stage is set. We're even seeing it a lot of activity, demonic activity in, in our day. But um, it's interesting that when the Antichrist finally comes, the world is not going to be... Um, a secular world, it's going to be a very spiritual world, but not in a good way. So verse 1, we read, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. Let me stop you. Some of the man manuscripts say, and I believe it's the correct translation, Then he, the dragon or Satan, stood on the sand of the sea. Chapter 12 and 13 are really the same narrative. 
Sometimes the chapter divisions are, are helpful. Sometimes they hurt our understanding. Uh, remove the verses and just read the flow of chapter 12 into chapter 13. Let me read uh, verse 17 of chapter 12. And I'll just read then into verse 1 of chapter 13. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Then he stood, again, Satan, the dragon, on the sand of the sea. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads uh, a blasphemous name. See, it's all connected. If you go back to chapter 12, the war in heaven, where Satan is cast out of heaven and thrown down to the earth, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a little time left, and he's determined to persecute. His main goal is to persecute Israel, because they were the instrument through which Messiah came into the world, who was going to crush the devil's head shortly, right? And uh, so he, the devil is furious. He is kicked out of heaven. And he comes down to the earth having great wrath because he knows he's only got a little time left. And if he's going down, he's taking as many people with him. As, that's how he thinks, okay? And so he's going to primarily target Israel, the Jewish people, but really any believers in Jesus Christ, he's going to target. And many Jews will be saved, 144,000 to name uh, a large chunk, but they're going to go out and be used by God to save millions, no doubt. But um, I want you to understand that the devil's plan, it's, it, it, we're told here, is to incarnate himself into this earthly leader, who we call the Antichrist, who uh, up until this point has been a man of peace. Now, he doesn't come on the world scene as a tyrant, a military dictator. Uh, he doesn't even take power. It's, he's thrust into the role. Uh, somehow the world knows this guy is uh, very charismatic. He is very wise beyond uh, comprehension. Uh, and, and so he is, he is put into this role of leader of the known world. And uh, at first he acts like a man of peace. He forms a coalition. He gets a world government together where there's ten regions that he uh, places leaders over. And together, it's kind of a democratic thing, like the United States of the world. You have these regions that act independently, but they're all connected. Uh, and, the, and the Antichrist is, seems like the ultimate politician who's just, he's just uh, directing and steering, but not controlling yet. Not yet. Not yet. But he's working with the nations of the earth. This is the first three and a half years. He's working with the nations of the earth to bring about global peace and prosperity. And for a while, he achieves that. First uh, Thessalonians 5, you know, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So for a time, he kind of does lull the world into this, this time of, of peace and prosperity. The world thinks this is our guy. This is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Look, he's brought peace to the world. And, and the world is going to rejoice. Um, but it's not going to be for long. Because God's judgment is going to be poured out. Um, but but I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so this guy comes across the man. He's, he's the ultimate politician, man of peace, the people's guy. 
you know, and he's just doing his best to bring everyone together. Now, however, this man becomes a military tyrant. Think of Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Napoleon, all rolled into one. The turning point that causes the Antichrist to show his true colors and allows Satan to enter into him is an event that happens around the midpoint of the final seven years uh, that is so monumental. It's mentioned three times in this chapter alone. Let's just keep reading. I stood on the sand of the sea, or then he, I think is a correct translation, stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Now, the Greek word for beast is therion, and it's a word that's used to describe the Antichrist here and also in chapter 11, verse 7. The word does not refer to a domesticated animal, but to a wild, savage, ravenous beast of prey. Whatever this entity is, and I believe it could be a demon that now uh, inhabits the Antichrist along with the devil, but um, something is going to turn this guy from Mr. Mild-mannered nice guy to like a raving lunatic. And, uh, you know, uh, it was said of Napoleon, I'm sorry, uh, Caesar Nero, got my dictators mixed up, <laughs> that initially he was a pretty good guy. He, uh, he brought a lot of reforms uh, that helped people. He built uh, aqueducts and uh, roads that people could travel and commerce could take place and towns could prosper. At first, he was a, a pretty good leader from what I'm told. Then something happened, like somebody threw a switch. And this guy went like almost like he was mad, okay? In fact, I think he, he did get insane. Nobody really knows what happened. I've heard some commentators uh, give an opinion. It happened right around the time Saul of Tarsus finally appeared before Caesar. Remember? He was in prison. He waited there for a couple of years under house arrest. And finally he appears before Caesar. Because he didn't... He, he, he was a Roman citizen. He had a right to plead his case. He was being railroaded, Saul, Paul, of course. And uh, so he um, eventually said, look, uh, I plead my case to Caesar. That was his right as a Roman citizen. Well, you didn't just go before Caesar. You had to wait your turn, get in the queue. And so it took a couple of years. And don't you know when Paul stood before Caesar, he laid a heavy witness on the guy. He laid a... Because in Paul's mind, if I can bring Caesar to Christ, the whole world could get saved. It would open up avenues for the gospel that are closed to us right now. So Paul laid a heavy witness on this guy, and he didn't receive Christ, but he did let Paul go. He realized Paul was innocent. But something happened right after that. Um, and I believe it was, it was him, him rejecting the gospel, because, I mean, come on. I mean, apart from Jesus Christ... Paul the Apostle, I mean, you know, probably the second strongest advocate for the gospel in the world, you know, uh, apart from Jesus, the most powerful, right? And I think it could be that when Caesar Nero rejected Christ, um, just it, it just allowed demonic entities to really get a hold of him. You know, 
The Bible says that for those who refuse to receive the love of the truth, the gospel, that they might be saved, God will send strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And there comes a point when God gives a person light and they reject it, that he removes it, and now darkness is taking over their life. So, well, I don't know, you fill in the blank, but I, I really see in Caesar Nero, uh, you know, the, um, him being like the forerunner of the Antichrist. Something causes this guy to snap. And I, I just think that it's, you know, him, him rejecting the truth and all. And uh, eventually this demonic entity uh, possesses him and just takes over. But um, it says here that, um, uh, that you know, this, this, this wild, savage, voracious beast of prey uh, now takes over him. Now, un understand something. Um, this is baffled commentators. If you've ever studied the book of Revelation, uh, you'll, you'll find out that a, a lot of commentators and scholars don't really agree. They, they really, it's kind of confusing. Not that I have figured it out, but there are others who make another suggestion. What am I talking about? Well, the word beast. The word beast. You see the word beast throughout the book, right? Uh, especially starting chapter 13. You got to understand something. If you're really going to understand uh, every place the word beast is used, you got to understand that it seems as though it's talking about both the kingdom and then the man. So it could be referring to the world um, empire at this time, or it could be referring to the leader of that world empire, the Antichrist. Sometimes it's almost like in the same verse, it's talking about both of them, or both things. And uh, you got to pay close attention and, uh, and, and read carefully to determine, well, is this talking about uh, the beast as the world government, or is what's in view here the beast uh, as a man, the Antichrist? The reason is because Scripture, uh, scripture views the final world empire um, as being inseparable from its leader. That's why they're kind of commingled together. That's why they're kind of, it's like, it, 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 it could be talking about both at the same time. Kind of like the way Hitler at one time was seen, was seen as inseparable from the Third Reich. I mean, it was like they were one together. It's going to be the same way here with this coming world government. It, it's going to be so connected to the Antichrist almost that they're one together, all right? And um, so verse 1 again, um, Then he stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a, a beast rising up, first of all, out of the sea. Let's just stop there again. Out of the sea, this beast rising up out of the sea. This could be a reference to the Mediterranean Sea, signifying that this leader comes from the Mediterranean world, or in other words, from the area once occupied by the old Roman Empire. Now, that view was very popular, oh, up until maybe 20 or 30 years ago. That was the classic view of, you know, of this world government, okay? Um, however, in the scriptures, the nations are often likened to the sea, the nations. In other words, the sea is used as an idiom for the nations quite a bit. Let me just read you three passages, okay? You can write down the references, Isaiah 17, verse 12. 
Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of seas. So a multitude of many people who make a roar like the roar of the seas. And to the rushing nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. Uh, comparing the humanity with the seas. Isaiah 57 verse 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, which when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. And then in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, we read, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So guys, it could be that this world leader will come from the nations, causing many commentators to say, well, he must be a Gentile. He must be a Gentile. In fact, some of people even suggest he comes from the nations uh, with regard to the United Nations. It could be that this guy, the reason everyone knows him and thinks he'd be a great world leader is because they've already seen him leading the United Nations, which is technically not in charge of the whole world, although it likes to think it is. But maybe this guy, whoever he is, is going to be such a good leader when this time comes that now he's going to be thrust into this larger role as leader of a one-world government. But I, I'll tell you this, though. For those people that think the Antichrist is going to be a Gentile, maybe. But I'll tell you this. I don't see how the Jewish people accept a Gentile Messiah. That's just me. I, and there's other scriptures that I believe indicate he's going to be Jewish. I just don't understand. Some people say he's going to be a Muslim. How in the world is a Jew going to receive a Muslim Messiah? I mean, come on. Again, verse 1, Then he stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns. Now, we've already kind of talked about this uh, in chapter 12. We'll really hit it in chapter 17 because... That's when it's really elaborated on, right? But Revelation 17 tells us that the seven heads represent seven mountains, which symbolize seven world empires, which have run their course throughout, the, throughout world history under the control of Satan, who is the god of this world. Uh, as we said, six of these world empires were contiguous uh, and followed in this order. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon... Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. The seventh and final world empire has not been contiguous. It's been removed from the others by about 2,000 years now. Well, not quite, all right? Um, I think, what did Rome fall in about 400 AD? Uh, around that time, okay, I think. Uh, but this final world empire doesn't go back, doesn't slam up next to the last world empire. It's been removed now uh, for you know, 1,500 or so years. The seventh and final world empire will be ruled by Antichrist. And it's going to be, once again, a ten-nation confederacy, or, as I've already alluded to, probably a ten-geopolitical region confederacy, all right, where the world is going to be divided into ten geopolitical regions, each having a ruler. We, we'd say a, we, we say a king. They're called kings here. It's just the word for ruler. Uh, they might not call these uh, leaders kings. They might call them prime ministers or 
governors, or something. Or kings, it might be, okay? The ten horns represent the ten kings, again, or rulers of these ten world regions, uh, who will rule under the Antichrist, which is why the crowns, and the Greek word for crowns is diadems, diadema, and it's a word that means the crown of a king or the crown of a ruler, as opposed to a Stephanos crown, which is what the Antichrist was seen wearing to open up chapter 6. Okay, That was a Stephanos crown, the crown of a victor or a conqueror. When a general came back from a conquest that he had been successful in, they would put a Stephanos crown, usually a laurel wreath, on his head, and he would be given a parade through the streets of Rome because he had been successful in conquering over uh, his en- or Rome's enemies. Uh, this is different. This is the crown of a ruler, okay? And these crowns, these diadems, are, are on the horns, which are the leaders of these regions, because they are going to be ruling over the earth under the Antichrist. Well, at the end of verse 1, we read, And on his heads... So this beast, on his heads, a blasphemous name was written. Uh, turn to Daniel 11. And then keep your finger there because we're going to be coming back to Daniel in just a minute. So John sees this beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, On the ten horns were ten crowns, crowns of a leader, and on his heads a blasphemous name. We're not given any more than that here in Revelation. But if you turn back to Daniel 11, let's pick it up in verse 36. gives us much more. Then the king, and the context is the Antichrist, shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. Who's in control ultimately? God Almighty. He's allowing this to take place. But he is in absolute control and will only allow the Antichrist's power and authority to go on for so long before God steps in. But um, verse 37, he shall regard, this is the Antichrist now, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above all gods. Now, this verse, uh, Daniel eleven thirty-seven, tells me he's going to be Jewish. Tells me he's going to be Jewish. When we read the statement, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers. The God of his fathers. Well, Daniel, uh, you know, that idea that the God of his fathers, that's a Jewish concept. Uh, Because obviously Daniel, Jewish, uh, writing about this, this Messiah who doesn't have any regard for uh, you know, the God of the Jewish patriarchs, fathers, right? Nor the desire of women. Now, from that statement, a lot of people think he's going to be homosexual. 
But that is a very um, Jewish phrase. Every young Jewish gal, from the time she was old enough to understand, always wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. Being the mother of Messiah was the desire of every Jewish young woman. I think the whole context here is Jewish. So you have in these verses, um, he's not going to regard Yahweh. He's not going to care about the Messiah. He's only going to be uh, consumed with one thing, power, power, and uh, ruling over people. And this is why the Antichrist has a blasphemous name on his heads. Again, Revelation 13, 1. It's because he engages in the ultimate blasphemy. What is that? Declaring himself to be God. Look at Revelation 13, 2. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now, let me stop here. And I want you to turn over to Daniel 7, because we really need to read um, what the vision Daniel saw, because it very much, it it really, John's seeing the same thing, uh, in in a sense. I mean, Daniel sees more uh, than John sees, but it's the same basic vision, okay? Let's read it out of Daniel 7, and let's start at verse 2. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, there, that is a reference to the Mediterranean. Uh, so you know, maybe this man does come out of uh, the area of the Mediterranean, where the uh, old Roman Empire used to be situated. Verse 3, and four, uh, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Verse 8, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Remember that, okay? Then the vision is interpreted for Daniel. Okay, starting with verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all of this. This would be an angel that's standing there. 
So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, are, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So now that's just the whole deal. Uh, you've got four world kingdoms, and in the days of the fourth kingdom, Messiah comes back, sets up his kingdom that will last forever. It just gives a quick overview, all right? Then he goes back. He said, um, in verse 19, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. So, so it's really this fourth beast that has Daniel really sh shaken, okay? And he wants to know more information about this fourth beast or kingdom, which was different from all others, all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the res residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows, I was watching, and the same horn was making war with the saints and prevailing against them. Let me just stop there and say this, all right? This little horn is the Antichrist, if you didn't figure that out already. Now, if you didn't figure that out, what really gives it away is his big mouth. Of all the titles in the Bible for the Antichrist, technically, Antichrist is not one of them. John the Apostle uses that term in, I think, his first and second epistles. Interestingly, he doesn't use it in the book of Revelation. But that's fine, because that's how we know him, and that's, that's fine. Okay, It's not important. But of all the titles he goes by, the one that's most dominant, that, most, that describes him most often in scripture is his big mouth. Maybe we should call him Mr. Big Mouth. I don't know, okay? But um, that's what's going on here. Now, uh, verse 21 again, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and what? Prevailing against them. Guys, this cannot be talking. And then the time we're studying, what Daniel is seeing in his vision is the very Thing we're studying right here in Revelation and how the Antichrist is going to be prevailing against God's saints. Well, we know this can't be talking about the church, about church saints, since Jesus promised that against his church the gates of hell would not prevail. This is obviously talking about tribulation saints. Now hold on to that, we'll come back to it. Verse 22. Well, at the end of verse 21, he was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth. This is a global kingdom that's in view. All right, The others were more local. Sure, you had Roman Empire, which was pretty large, uh, and you had the, the uh, others of, of, of Babylon and, and, and other of those world kingdoms, and they did cover a lot of territory, but they weren't worldwide kingdoms. This is letting us know that this kingdom is different from all the others. That's what the text is saying, because this king, kingdom is going to be a global kingdom, right? And the global kingdom of you, it shall trample it and break it to pieces. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom. Trample it and break it to pieces. 
Um, I'm not, I just want to make sure I get the, the, the context right. Um, again, verse 23, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Verse 24, then ten horns, the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall, shall subdue three kings. At one point when the Antichrist becomes a military dictator, he's going to have some kind of a falling out with three of the kings of the global government. And he's going to rip them out by the roots, it says. Uh, so he's not Mr. Nice Guy anymore, okay? Um, and um, verse 25, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. That's another way of saying three and a half years. A time, one year, times two years half a time half a year as i said guys this is the most documented period in the entire bible uh we we, we read here it's in length a time times half a time three and a half years other places 42 months it's called three hundred twelve hundred sixty days uh you know so it's the most documented period of time in the bible what is it it's the second half of the 70th week of Daniel, what Jesus called in Matthew 24, 21, great tribulation, okay? Now, guys, John is seeing much the same thing that Daniel saw, except John really only sees the final kingdom. And he says in Revelation 13, verse 2, it says, Now the beast, and here I believe it's really talking about the kingdom. Now the beast, which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. So guys, as John sees this final kingdom, it is going to have some of the, some of the same characteristics that the other preceding kingdoms had. It's going to be kind of an amalgamation of the first three kingdoms. Uh, the idiom of the leopard, bear, and lion found in Daniel's vision uh, of the first three kingdoms dramatically emphasized the characteristics of of the nations they represented. So you, you have the imagery of a, of a leopard, bear, and lion. Uh, those three animals are related to the first three kingdoms because in many ways uh, they best kind of um, represented what those kingdoms were in a sense, right? One author puts it this way, said, and I quote, the lion was a fitting symbol for the fierce consuming power of the Babylonian Empire. The ferocity, strength, and stability of the Medo-Persian Empire led to its depiction as a bear. The Greeks' swift conquest, particularly under the mercurial Alexander the Great, reflect the speed and viciousness of the leopard. Something interesting is John lists these, these kingdoms or these animals. It's in the reverse order from Daniel. Do you notice that? Why is that? Because John's looking backward in history, and Daniel's looking forward. Daniel actually gives us the chronology of when these kingdoms would arise, right? But John looking backwards, because these kingdoms have already come and gone a long time before John, he gives us the reverse 
order. One author said, and I quote, like the indescribable fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, which represents the Roman Empire, Antichrist's final empire will be a composite of all, of all of the empires that have gone before it. It will incorporate all the ferocity, viciousness, swiftness, and strength of the other world empires, end quote. So you understand, okay? This final empire, I mean, and, and you know, Daniel, who has been given this vision in chapter 7, I mean, he's no stranger to world, to, um, uh, well, what they would call a world government back then because they were governing the whole known world, basically. But Daniel was uh, not a slouch. He was high up in, uh, in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and then later Cyrus and then I think Darius, he also ascended. He understood this. He understood kingdoms. He understood conquest. And he says, but this fourth kingdom, I've never seen anything like it. And he says to the angel, you've got to give me a little more information because this kingdom uh, is something like I have never seen before. It's going to be, guys, the most powerful kingdom in all of human history. America, where's America? The most powerful country on the face of the earth. We're not even mentioned. And uh, as time goes on, I think we're going to see more and more why we're not mentioned. But this coming world kingdom, and what the Bible is telling us is, it's going to be unparalleled in human history for power and ferociousness. And guys, it's going to be Satan's last and greatest attempt to stop the reign of Jesus Christ. You have to understand something. Not only is he amassing power across the globe because he wants to have this powerful kingdom, you have to, he's, he's gathering forces for an ultimate battle he's going to be waging. He is going to be going to war against Jesus Christ. The devil knows the scriptures. And as we have said before, uh, the Bible says, uh, Revelation 12, verse 6, that from the time the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, 1260 days later, Jesus Christ is going to be returning to the earth to set up his kingdom. So the Antichrist has three and a half years to gather a global army to go to war against the king of kings. You say, does he really think he can win? Apparently he does. Apparently he does. But it's going to be Satan's last attempt to stop Christ from reigning. But like all other attempts from the devil to thwart God's purposes, it will ultimately fail, obviously. Again, verse 2. Now the beast, in other words, the kingdom which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, mouth like the mouth of a lion. Listen, the dragon, who's the dragon? The devil. The dragon gave him, who is him, the Antichrist, his power, his throne, and great authority. I looked for a quote that I think I included in my last study of Revelation. I couldn't find it. it it's coming. Uh, it's, it, it's, as we go through the I'm updating all my notes as I go through these chapters. I'll find it. But let me just say this right now. 
the Antichrist is going to be Satan's masterpiece. Satan's masterpiece. His number is going to be what? What's the number of perfection in Scripture? Seven. The menorah, right? The what? The, 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 the oil-burning lamp with the stem in the center and coming out from the sides, the three branches, right? So six, three plus three is the number of man. You add one, Jesus Christ, man is complete. Man is not complete until he has made one with Jesus Christ. But 666 is the ultimate number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. Uh, and so on, right? And um, so if six is the number of man, 666 would represent the ultimate man, the Antichrist. Still a man, though. And yet, he is going to be Satan's masterpiece, right? Isn't it interesting that Lucifer was God's masterpiece? He was the most beautiful, the most wise, the most powerful angel God ever created. In charge of all the other angels. But he went bad. He rebelled. And now Satan's got his guy. He's creating, you might say. It's his masterpiece, who he's going to empower with supernatural attributes. This guy is going to have supernatural charisma, supernatural intellect he's going to have supernatural oratorical ability this guy's going to speak like nobody has ever spoken except for the lord jesus christ right and if you and, and on top of all of that second thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9 tells us that the devil will give him supernatural power in the sense that he will have the power to work miracles Verse 3, and I saw one of his heads as if, at, as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. Now, stay with me, because there's a lot here. There's a lot here that you might just read over quickly, all right? The interpretation of that phrase has been much debated among scholars. Like everything else, they don't agree on on much in Revelation, all right? Um, but this passage has been very much debated among scholars uh, because, uh, because the, the, the idea is, what is John referring to when he talks about one of the heads of the beast? Is he talking about the kingdom beast or the man beast? Okay, what, what, what is John talking about? Some, some commentators argue that the head whose fatal wound was healed, is talking about a kingdom. A kingdom that came to power, died, in other words, was destroyed, and eventually will be restored or resurrected. They see the death and resurrection miracle of this head as the restoration or resurrection of the old Roman Empire. That's why when I first got saved, that was the, that was the classic view with regard to this passage. Uh, I've changed my views on a lot of things because in 40 years a lot changes in the world and you become more aware of what is the Bible really talking about that we didn't really understand uh, 40 years ago. And they sure, sure, sure didn't understand 100 years ago, right? Christians, I mean. But 
there's a lot of commentators even to this day that believe that what's in view here is the uh, the, the the resurrection uh, of the old Roman Empire. It 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 was born, it thrived, it was destroyed. In other words, it died, but it's coming back to life again. And and this is what they pin that idea on. Uh, the Antichrist, they believe, will unite the countries occupying the territory of the old Roman Empire into, into a new empire. That's why it's not called the fourth and fifth beast. It, it lumps the fourth beast in, it says the fourth beast, and in the days of that kingdom, Jesus comes back. Well, the fourth beast was Rome. Jesus didn't come back at the end of the Roman Empire. No, because there's another facet of the Roman Empire that's coming that is just connected to it, even though it's separated by 1,500 years or whatever. Okay? Uh, I can see where they're coming from. All right? Um, and, and they go on to say that the Antichrist is going to have the, the ability to resurrect this old Roman Empire. And it's going to be such an incredible feat that you know, that um, his power to revive this once great empire, now bringing it back to life, uh, the rest of the leaders of the world are going to submit to his authority because, wow, okay, you know, I guess that's feasible, right? There's several difficulties with that view. And let me end with this, okay? Several difficulties with that view. The most obvious problem, is that while verse 3 speaks of one of the heads being mortally wounded, in other passages it specifies that the beast himself is slain. It's not really a kingdom. I mean, yeah, it starts off talking about a kingdom, but at one point it shifts over to a man. And we call him the Antichrist, okay? Um, and you can look these up on your own. Revelation 13, verse 12, and verse uh, 14 revelation 17 verse 8 and verse 11 it says very clearly that the antichrist is going to be assassinated now hear me out many commentators and i i believe this too uh, many commentators believe that someone is going to try to assassinate the antichrist i think that's pretty clear if you go to Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17, it talks about this guy, the idol shepherd, I-D-O-L, and says that uh, his right eye will be, I'll just paraphrase, he will be blind in his right eye and paralyzed in his right side, his arm, okay? Many believe, though, that's going to happen from a gunshot wound to the left side of his head. Not everybody is going to love this guy. That's why he's going to war so often in the book, okay? Just like when I had my knee replacement 10 years ago, as I was recovering, I read the, the biography of Bonhoeffer, and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in that biography, they talked about how many assassination attempts were made against Hitler. Now, Bonhoeffer was involved in, in like the last one that failed. And so because of that, when they found out he was a part of it, they had him executed only a short time before uh, Allied forces you know, took over. But I didn't realize how many times people tried to assassinate Hitler. The Antichrist can be the same deal. I mean, you know, you think that Hitler, everyone loved and revered Hitler. Not really. Not really. I'm talking about his own people. I'm talking about people in the world. I'm talking about Germans now. It's going to be the same way with the Antichrist. Not everyone's going to love this guy, and someone's going to try to take him out. And from this attempt... 
probably a gunshot wound to the left side of his head. His right eye becomes blind. His right hand is withered, it says. Uh, look, I don't personally believe he's going to be dead. Okay, I don't, I don't personally believe he is really going to be dead because I don't believe the devil has the power of life and death. I don't believe the devil has the power to raise someone who is legitimately dead from the dead. However, it's not going to really matter because Satan will present such a convincing counterfeit death and resurrection that the whole world is going to believe it really happened, that he really raised this person, the Antichrist. In fact, it's going to be such a powerful testimony to the world, listen now, of this man's godlike attributes. Now, I'm talking about the Antichrist, all right? Remember, up until this point, the world's pretty taken with this guy. But now someone tries to kill him. He lays dead for three days. Oh, trying to rip off God Almighty, right? Father, you know, his son Jesus Christ was crucified, dead for three days before he was resurrected. So the devil tries to counterfeit that, right? And the Antichrist lies dead, quote-unquote, for three days before he is resurrected. And um, at this point, guys... Um, it's such an incredible feat, you can well imagine, that this event becomes from this time forward in the book the event that defines him. That defi What do I mean? And, and, and so that we readers don't uh, downplay the importance, it's mentioned three times in this chapter alone and becomes a thing the world identifies him with, that he has power over life and death. He can't be killed. Look at Someone killed him, and he has the power to regenerate himself, re re resurrect himself. This guy must be God. And so now what was the world being enamored with him moves into full-blown worship of him. Full-blown worship of him. And now the world is like, who is like the beast? Who is able? to make war against him. I think this becomes the genesis of the um, armies of the earth that follow the Antichrist coming together to fight Jesus Christ. They at this point think this guy is strong enough to take on Jesus when he returns so that Jesus never reigns and we continue to reign. The Antichrist, our Messiah, continues to reign on the earth. And again, guys, what a counterfeit of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. John 10, verse 18. This is the devil thumbing his nose at God. He can't duplicate what God did. That was a real death and a real resurrection. Jesus Christ was really dead and he was brought back to life. The Bible says the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son all participated in Jesus' resurrection because they're God. They're the Trinity. So here comes Satan. He's going to mimic it, counterfeit it, but it's, you know, like anything that's counterfeited, it's not really, it's not the real thing, okay? And guys, this becomes a game changer. This becomes a game changer, game changer, for the Antichrist followers, who again 
and I'll end with this, up until this point, were enamored with this, this guy, but now move into full-blown worship of him as a god. Verse 4, so they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast. I'm going to stop there, okay? Satan, at this point in the tribulation, will finally get what he's always wanted, to be worshipped as God. So hang on to that thought. We will um, pick it up there, God willing, and uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. Father, we thank you, Lord, for uh, your word. It's incredible. Thank you, Lord, that you have placed here much for our learning. And I realize we won't be here as your church for most of it. We'll be in heaven, around the throne, around the throne of, of God, around the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will come back in chapter 19 to take possession, Lord Jesus, of what you have bought and paid for at Calvary's cross and to be a part of the kingdom you will establish. But Lord, it's good to know what's coming, that we can share it with people. And we just pray you continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.